Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. And this is another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. So this week, as is our protocol here, we are taking on one of the great hot topics of the nation. We are talking about vaccine mandates. So Batya, who are we about to hear from? Yeah, we're really excited to be joined by Liz Wheeler and Ben Wittes, and we're going to be talking about vaccine mandates. Can the government force you to get a vaccine? Uh, Now with the Delta variant breaking through, uh, people are really upset, really freaking out. And what do we do about this? Um, Is it the government's right to force you to get a vaccine? That's the question on the table. So that is a question on the table. There's all sorts of other ancillary issues here, too, right? I mean, uh, you know, we've seen what Governor DeSantis has done in Florida with respect to kind of uh, outlawing or at least cracking down on private entities that will institute their own vaccine mandate. So there's all sorts of kind of public and private power uh, influence questions going on here. But we will tease all that on the other side of the break. But before we do that, we do want to give a quick word to our sponsor. Our sponsor is Herzog Wines. You can find them at HerzogWine.com. So go to HerzogWine.com and start your own wine adventure today. But please stay with us. We'll be right back with Liz Wheeler and Ben Wittes. We are debating vaccine mandates. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to another episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. This week, we are talking about vaccine mandates. So, Badyo, let's tell the audience who we're about to hear from. We could not be more thrilled with today's guests. We are so excited to have Ben Wittes with us. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and editor-in-chief of the Lawfare blog. And we're so excited to have Liz Wheeler here. Liz is a former host of the One America News Network show, Tipping Point with Liz Wheeler, and she's the host of the new podcast, The Liz Wheeler Show. Ben, Liz, welcome to Newsweek's The Debate. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we're here to debate mask mandates, but I want to do something that I like to do sometimes on this pod, which is to first establish is there if there is any common ground between you so we can really pinpoint the exact place where you disagree. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you a series of five very quick yes, no questions to see if there isn't some overlap. And then I'm going to ask you each to elaborate on your position. I promise you we're going to spend the rest of the hour having you talk about what you actually think. So do try to just say yes or no. Okay. So here are the questions. All right. Um, Number one, do you believe that the vaccine is effective in stopping the spread of COVID-19? Ben? Yes. Liz? Yes and no. All right. We're going to get into that in a minute. Number two, do you believe that there are at least some legitimate reasons for not getting the vaccine? Liz? Yes. Ben? Yes, but they're limited. Do you think that the CDC's guidelines have been clear and closely tied to the scientific findings throughout this pandemic? Ben. Reasonably so to the extent data will permit. Liz. Not at all. Would the pandemic end quicker if everyone was vaccinated tomorrow? Ben. Yes. Liz. Not necessarily. And in general, last question, do you believe a person has a right to refuse medical care? Do you believe that what goes into a person's body should be their decision? Liz. 
Unequivocally, yes. Ben. Uh, yes. Okay, awesome. So there's a lot of agreement here and then uh, some really interesting places to get into it. So now I want you each to tell us where you stand on vaccine mandates. Now, Ben, we'll start with you. You had a viral tweet that upset everyone from Glenn Greenwald to Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> in which you uh, s sort of instituted your own personal vaccine mandate. I think you were probably maybe joking, but but go ahead and make the case for us. So I wasn't joking at all. I, I will not knowingly uh, engage with people who, in person, I'm happy to do it uh, remotely. I'm not interested in being punitive or stigmatizing, but I'm not also not interested in becoming a vector for transmission. And so if somebody tells me that they are uh, not vaccinated, I'm really not interested in being in their presence. And uh, and I will, of course, make exceptions to that for people who are have legitimate medical reasons uh, to not be vaccinated or for children for whom the vaccine is not uh, 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 approved on an emergency basis. But no, I, my own personal vaccine mandate is that I have I don't choose to socialize in person with people who are themselves choosing to be vectors for uh, the viral tr virus's transmission. And do you think that the government should take a page out of your playbook and mandate the vaccine? Uh, so that's a complicated question, and I can't answer it simply. So let me give you an overview of a complicated answer. Perfect. Um, I think that there is, uh, there may be good prudential reasons to uh, avoid formal mandates. Uh, uh, that is, you, you may risk radicalizing people further uh, by doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm not necessarily opposed to the strategy that the Biden administration has taken, which is to encourage employers uh, and other entities that are not the government to have uh, mandates, but not actually to do it themselves. Uh, that said, I certainly don't oppose a national vaccine mandate. Um, and uh, to me, the question is purely an instrumental one, which is to say uh, it, it matters to me only what will get the most people vaccinated. And if a vaccine mandate were to do that, uh, I have absolutely no problem with it. Liz, a lot to respond to there. Tell us your position on vaccine mandates and anything else you want to pick up on. Sure, sure. So I'd, I'd like to respond with some other common ground first. And I think that, I mean, I laughed, Ben, when I saw your tweet, but I actually think that that's probably the best way to do it, your personal choice. If you want to eliminate people from your life who have not gotten the vaccine or who are unwilling to disclose whether they've gotten it, that should, that should that's absolutely your choice. I personally find it ridiculous, but hey, it does, it shouldn't matter to you what I think if I find it ridiculous. That's how it should be done, not by employers and uh, not by the state, not by public health officials, not by the federal government. Um, I find it a little incongruent. And this is this is an interesting um, position that I've seen from many very, very uh, significant vaccine mandate supporters or vaccine supporters here is that they're worried about being um, infected with COVID-19 by coming into contact with people who haven't been vaccinated, yet they also say that they believe the vaccine is effective against COVID-19. So it, it seems to me you can't really have it both ways. Either you believe the vaccine is going to end the pandemic, you believe that it's going to stop transmission, you believe you're protected, 
or you believe that it doesn't really work, that you're still a vector of transmission, that it just maybe prevents you from dying. And I think that that's one of the examples that I would give um, from Body is Opening about where the CDC has been extremely um, communicatively poor is they've told people different things. I mean, we have the president of the United States tell us that if you get the vaccine, that you will not get COVID. We now know that obviously you can get COVID. It might not be as severe of a case, but you can get it. And we're told that you can transmit COVID even when you're vaccinated at the same uh, rate as those who are unvaccinated. Yet we're told again by the CDC that it's a uh, epidemic of the unvaccinated. These contradictions, I think, are what has caused the American public to lose faith in these institutions, to lose faith in the so-called experts. And I, for one, as an American citizen, I'm happy if you want to get the vax, that you have the opportunity to get the vax. And I'm happy if someone doesn't want to, to respect their right and their bodily autonomy to choose what goes into their body. I don't care. It's none of my business who gets the vaccine. Um, but the American people don't trust these institutions. And this is exactly why. So a, a, a couple of thoughts in response to that. So the first is, if you respect my right as an autonomous human being who gets to make my own associational choices to discriminate against people who do not get the vaccine. And let's be candid about what I'm doing. It's discrimination. It's not, it's not invidious discrimination for legal purposes, but I have adopted a personal policy of discrimination against the unvaccinated. My employer, the Brookings Institution, has also adopted that policy. Uh, if you're not vaccinated, uh, you're not going to be able to go into the Brookings Institution building. Why do you accept my right and encourage, you say you think my view is ridiculous, but you think the way I'm doing it is the right way to do it, but the way the Brookings Institution is doing it is inappropriate. And for government to encourage the Brookings Institution to do that is uh irresponsible or, or inappropriate. And my question is why? We're both autonomous yeah. legal entities uh, that are entitled to discriminate on this basis. Why isn't the right answer for the Brookings Institution and for United Airlines and for a lot of other employers to say, uh, like Ben Wittes, we're adopting our own personal uh, 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 mandate and for Joe Biden to say, that's great. This, this is a good faith question. I was going to say, Liz, I want you to actually directly respond to that because, you know, our people, so to speak, the conservatives tend to be divided on this question, right, as to whether or not there is a legitimate role for government to kind of come in and and um, and, and tell private businesses that that they can or cannot discriminate on the basis of vaccination status. So I, I have my own stance on this, but I'll be curious for your, for, for your stance on that. Yeah, I think it's a good question. So let's start with your personal vaccine mandate. So you have every right in the world to ask people that are in your personal sphere if they had the vaccine and to show you proof. And the people in your sphere have every right to say, well, with all due respect, it's none of your business. I choose not to disclose that, right? We all, we kind of all accept that premise. But when you have an employer that's mandating it, you, and you said at the beginning that you do think that there are limited but valid reasons that people choose not to get the vaccines. Now, these might be healthcare related reasons. They might have a, you know, a private medical condition that causes them to, um, them and their medical provider perhaps to consider themselves not to be uh, not to be able to take the vaccine safely. They might have religious beliefs, but you would have to disclose those as an individual to an employer. And I believe that that's a violation of privacy. I believe that regardless of the legalese to it, that's not something that we want in a nation. In fact, to use a term from the left's playbook, it's almost ableist because then anybody who has any kind of 
health condition that they'd prefer to keep private. They'd prefer all of their colleagues not to know about it. They'd prefer their boss not to know about it. It's their personal medical issue. They would then have to disclose that to their employer, which could in turn cause some kind of discrimination or different treatment or just a feeling of a violation of privacy because it's personal information. The same even with religious beliefs. Sometimes people go into work, and I know you and I work in politics, so this is something that we talk about on a regular basis, but oftentimes in private in places of private enterprise, people don't talk about their religion as much. They don't talk about their politics because they don't want to be having those debates. They don't want to maybe feel ostracized. They just want to go in and do their jobs. And this is creating an environment then in these different places of employment where people have to disclose their most private personal convictions or their medical problems. And I don't think that that's a good road that we want to go down. That's number one. Number two, you mentioned United Airlines, and I do think it's very different too for government subsidized or um, companies and corporations that have been bailed out by the government to enact these mandates. Because we all know that even when private industry is enacting mandates, that they're, they're under some coercion by the federal government. This is, of course, a strategy by the Biden administration to get as many people vaccinated as possible. They're using the private sector as sort of the enforcers of this. They're saying, you know, in New York, they're saying, um, the former Cuomo administration is saying you can't go in bars or restaurants or gyms. And private business has the responsibility then to actually be the enforcer here. But if you have a larger corporation that is um, that could lose a lot of money because a large segment of the population would not take part in their business if there were a vaccine mandate, the only reason that they would then go forward with that from a business standpoint is if they know that the federal government would bail them out. So it is tied in to the federal government using um, the idea of private industry as sort of their weapon, as sort of their enforcer. So it's it's kind of a hybrid reason why I don't think that um, why I don't think the American people want employers, private employers, to be the ones that are forcing this mandate. But let me let me let me push you a little bit on that because um, I if if I uh, let let's take a hypothetical large company that uh, would follow your you know, w would 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 not require people to be man uh, vaccinated or would not require people to be um, uh, to not be in the facility, right? Because realistically, for a lot of companies, it's really if you don't want to be vaccinated, you're going to work remotely. It's not it's not that there there are some where your presence is required. So it's it's a condition of employment. But for a lot of others, it's not. It's a condition of presence in the facility. Um, so I, I guess it seems to me the, con the, the necessary legal consequence of what you're saying is that a company that is not allowed to ask, that is not allowed to require you to be vaccinated as a condition of, of your presence in their facilities, is that they are necessarily telling their other employees, we reserve the right to expose you to a potentially deadly pathogen in the presence of, uh, in, in, in circumstances in which we have the ability to know how to not do that. It seems to me that is potentially exposing companies to, uh, potentially exposing workers to a great deal of danger and potentially exposing companies to a great deal of liability because those workers could turn around and say, hey, you negligently exposed me to the virus knowing and having the ability to get uh, to have a virus 
free or at least a much more virus-free workplace. How can you justify that? Well, Go I think there's some flaws in, in the logic that you just laid out. The first flaw is, according to the CDC itself now, um, even if you're vaccinated, you can be a vector of transmission of the virus. So you talk about employees being exposed to a deadly pathogen, just because you're vaccinated doesn't exempt you from being one of those people that transmits it. So no, I don't know, are, are we considering people, are we considering people who've gotten vaccinated as being, as being more of a manslaughter situation, but people who haven't been vaccinated as being homicide because the end will be the same. It would still be transmitted. So I, I think, I think there's a pretty fundamental, um, a pretty fundamental flaw right there that, that we need to acknowledge what exactly this, this virus does. The, the other thing, and this is where it comes back to exactly who's at risk and how deadly this virus is, we don't have any such ideas, philosophy or legal when it comes to the flu, right? You don't go into your place of uh, private enterprise and worry that you're going to be exposed to a potentially deadly pathogen if you catch the influenza. In fact, people even go to work with the flu. I personally don't advocate for that. I never let my staff come to work when they were sick because I think it's discourteous. I think it's inconsiderate. But we, just by nature of going out in public and engaging with other people, we are all petri dishes of germs. And we all, of course, transmit viruses, um, some as deadly or more so than COVID-19 on a regular basis. And it never became this idea that you were committing homicide until this year. And frankly, that's an, it's an absurd proposition. In fact, if we take this down the, the same road, we would have to literally contact trace every person in the country who's ever had a common cold coronavirus or ever had the influenza and follow the train of transmission to through every person they infect to somebody that they potentially um, infected, maybe first degree, second degree, third degree, who was a vulnerable person, contracted it and died. No one would ever suggest that because it's ridiculous. Yet that's the same sort of thing that you're suggesting when you think that you can actually go into a work environment and be guaranteed that you'd never contact any kind of virus. Ben, I know, I know you want to hop in here, but let's take let's take it to a quick break. Uh, we'll give you the right of first refusal to respond there on the other side. Uh, this is a very uh, self-moderated episode of Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. We'll be right back. Stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. Today we have Liz Wheeler and Benjamin Wittes. We are discussing vaccine mandates. So we went to break there. Ben, I know you were, you were dying to hop in to respond. So I'll, I, I want to give you that opportunity right now. Yeah. So first of all, I want to correct something about the CDC's and for that matter, the, the FDA's position about what the vaccine does and doesn't do. Um, there has nobody serious has ever claimed uh, that this vaccine or these sets of vaccines are 100% effective. The claim and the representations of the companies has been, and the data has tested, uh, their effectiveness against serious disease. So your point that you are not, um, and, and their rate of effectiveness, uh, Moderna and Pfizer was always in the 90%, not the 100%, uh, uh, range. And those 
tests, those uh, clinical trials were done, by the way, involving earlier variants of the virus, not the Delta variant of the virus. Uh, I agree with you that the CDC has struggled as Delta has come out to figure out what it all means. I don't think that discredits them. I think they're working with a very, very fluid situation as, as best as they can. Um, that said, nobody should say or should have ever said, if you are vaccinated, you are 100% protected. And you're certainly correct that in a situation where large numbers of people are vaccinated, you're still going to have some degree of community spread. So a vaccine mandate at an employment place of employment is not, I agree with you, a guarantee of uh, safety. That said, uh, you can take this point way too far, and I think you do. Um, a, if you look at the states that currently have massive uh, outbreaks, they are states with low rates of vaccination, full stop. If you look at the people who are intubated in hospitals right now, those people are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly unvaccinated. And there is a direct correlation. It is, it, you don't need to be a public health expert to see it. There is a direct correlation between the rate of vaccination in communities and the rate and, and or an inverse relationship between the rate of vaccination and the rate of this Delta spread. And so while you're certainly correct that an employer that has a vaccine mandate is not giving a, a, a public a health guarantee to its uh, employees, it is fair to say that an employer who doesn't is exposing employees to unnecessary risk. Now, I wanna, I wanna test how committed you are to your proposition here. Because there is an edge case that we dealt with through vaccine mandates, and it's called smallpox. And smallpox, um, uh, you know, killed about 30% of the people it infected. Uh, we wiped it from the face of the earth, at least in natural settings, through coercive programming of forced vaccinations. And my question is, were we wrong to do that? Should we have uh, given people, by the way, I never got the smallpox vaccine because I had a medical condition mm -hmm. as a baby that counterindicated it. Mm -hmm. um, so there were ways of, you know, there, it was not a uniform thing, but was that wrong? And if smallpox, were, there were an outbreak today and uh, Newsweek, announced that it was having a vac. If you wanted to show up in Newsweek's offices, you had to be vaccinated against smallpox. Would that be wrong? And if not, then aren't we just really negotiating over the numbers of people? Like you're, you, you think this is more like flu. I think it's a little bit more like smallpox. And we both agree that there's at some point a vaccine mandate is appropriate. It's just how afraid of COVID you are. To a certain extent, I think you actually hit on a very important point. And that very important point is the what is it-ness of COVID-19, right? Because it does make a difference how fatal 
a case is and who is at risk and what the transmissibility uh, factor of these of these different diseases are. So my question back to you in answer to your question is, what's the infection fatality rate of smallpox and who are at risk? Are children at risk? Are adolescents at risk? Are healthy young adults at risk? Are just elderly people at risk? Are obese people at risk? And um, what's the infection fatality rate if you actually contract that? That, of course, changes the judgment call of individual people, whether or not it's wise to get the virus. I still don't believe that the government, that we, in, in the history of our country, we have no reason to trust a government to forcibly inject us with anything. I am a skeptic based on the history of our country. I am a skeptic of public health officials telling us that we must do something against our own judgment for our own good or even under the guise of a health emergency. I think it's been abused many times. I mean, there was a time that the U.S. government actually did experiments on Black Americans and told them they were treating them for syphilis, but allowed the syphilis to fester just to see what happened. I mean, there are there are people just as man is fallen, man is fundamentally a sinner, meaning mankind, of course, that, that applies to government officials as well. And so we have to reserve that right as Americans. If we're living in a society that we believe in limited government, we believe in personal freedom, that applies to medical freedom as well. And sometimes in a society where our basis is freedom, people make decisions that you don't agree with. People make decisions that objectively are not healthy for their bodies. I mean, we see this all the time in the United States, actually. We see the obesity epidemic in our country. These people are objectively in full knowledge of what makes them unhealthy, what makes them obese. They are choosing anyway to engage in behaviors that make them very likely to have heart disease, very likely to die early, very likely to flood hospitals with their in emergency rooms with their emergency medical problems. Yet we as a country allow them even though that creates a burden on our society, we allow them to make those decisions for themselves. And so going back to the smallpox vaccine or the COVID vaccine, of course, it should impact individuals' decisions whether or not to get inoculated, depending on the severity of the virus. But should government step in and forcibly mandate that you have to be injected with something against your will? I want to find out exactly where Liz, I think, would differentiate herself from from the traditional conservative understanding of the state police powers. I, Liz, I feel, like we, I feel like back in the day, we discussed this on your show all the time, actually. So, you know, I'm a constitutional lawyer by background. I tend to think in, in constitutional law. So the, the traditional understanding of the state's police powers is an 1882 case called Muggler versus Kansas, where they kind of enunciate this quite clearly. The traditional conception are health, morals, and safety of the people. So going back to kind of like the founding era, um, you know, I'll, I'll, there was a, a robust strand of thought that, you know, if there was a contagion, if there was a fire, that private businesses could just be shuttered, frankly, um, at a state level, not at a federal level, of course. But so I, I guess like, my question to you is, like, where do you draw the line between what's acceptable at a state level police power level versus not? Is it the, is it the actual injection of something into the body? It's fundamentally a bodily autonomy argument. Is, is that it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's 250 years of seeing corruption in our government and uh, understanding that in order to have a free society, there's inherent risk that comes with that society and asking the question, what is the limiting principle on this? I mean, right now we're talking about vaccine mandates. This vaccine hasn't even been approved by the FDA. It's still emergency youth author authorization. We don't we don't have any long term data on it. So where does that end? 
right? What What is the limiting principle on this? Because we all know, regardless of political affiliation, this actually doesn't matter. All politicians, in my opinion, are corrupt, and we should be skeptical of them all. Where, where would they draw the line? What could they not do to us or force us to do or threaten us to coerce us into acting a certain way under, under penalty of you know, taking away our fundamental right to livelihoods, if you're talking about business or personal autonomy, if they're talking, if we're talking about our body, we have to reserve this right, especially now in an era where um, we are in such a medicalized society. There is, this is such a part of our daily life versus back in the founding when it wasn't so much a part of daily life. We have to be very cognizant about drawing that line and understanding that there's some inherent risk that people have to be trusted to, um, to handle themselves and that if we give it to government, then we're essentially their subjects. We're not citizens. Right. And, and Ben, I'd be curious then how you respond, because, you know, Liz, is uh, she, she hasn't fully explicated, but she's, she's saying repeatedly, and I'm personally quite sympathetic to this, that the CDC has kind of been all over the map. Right. Um, since the get go, um, you know, I think even kind of um, in, in not covid apologists, but uh, people who are t- more strenuous and kind of the mandates and the masking, I think uh, even, even a lot of them would admit that um, Fauci, Burks, kind of early on and, you know, up until probably the past few months have not always been remarkably consistent on this. So are, I'd be curious, are, are, are you sympathetic to that argument when you hear it made? And do you understand that it's kind of being made through the prism of a lot of folks who feel like that we are increasing kind of a two-tiered society in America where these, these, the ruling class kind of reigning over the deplorables? Are you, are, are you sympathetic to that at all? Or do you, are, do you, do you tend to kind of dismiss that? Um, that's an interesting question, and I actually think it's two questions. One is the consistency of the CDC, and the other is the larger culture war question. And I'm not sure my two answers to that are are consistent with one another, <laughs> or if I don't think they're inconsistent, but they're just kind of uh, they're orthogonal to one another. So let me let me try to take them uh, uh, separately. Um, I think the CDC's early performance uh, in COVID was quite bad, actually, and I um, uh, uh, and I think there was a lot of um, a lot of uh, less than stellar uh, organization of things like um, test. You know, the early testing regime was a disaster. Uh, there was a lot of uh, mixed information and how much of that was CDC failure and how much of that was sort of the larger uh, Michigas of the Trump administration, I'm not sure, but certainly the CDC as an entity that is kind of world renowned as uh, as a, um, uh, a controller of disease did not shroud itself in glory early in the pandemic. Um, more recently, I think there's a different explanation for it, which is that the situation is itself very fluid mm-hmm. and the data uh, is constantly being reevaluated. And I totally understand why people find that frustrating, but I wouldn't want Tony Fauci to get up and say, hey, I don't think masks are useful. And then when it turns out that they are, not switch gears. So I, I think there's a certain amount of fluidity that is uh, right and to be expected in an atmosphere in which the virus is changing, the, the, the epidemiology of the disease is changing, et cetera. Um, finally, on your broader point, look, I, I um, as to the, the culture war aspects of it, 
I am a believer that we are one country and we have to learn to live together. And um, I don't want to humiliate anybody. Um, and I don't want a ruling class to be presiding over deplorables. And I also don't want people behaving deplorably um, toward members of uh, what they perceive to be the ruling class. And so I look, I try to avoid uh, extreme rhetoric of all kinds. It's just not my thing. I don't, um, I get very angry sometimes. I try not to speak in anger when I speak. Sometimes I fail at that. Um, but I don't think, I, I do understand how both uh, components of our political culture learn to hate one another. And I think it is uh, very uh, regrettable and we should all be fighting against it all the time. Liz, let's give you the last word of this block to respond to and then we'll take it to a quick commercial break. Sure. And and I, I appreciate your humility. I would just press a little bit on the CDC here because I do think, I mean, a significant, maybe even a majority, but a significant vocal minority um, just edged out perhaps do not trust the CDC and feel that the CDC is issuing recommendations that severely limit their personal freedoms. You know, it's the CDC that's recommending that children be masked in school. It's the CDC that recommended that businesses, non-essential businesses be closed down. It was the CDC that recommends all of these different measures, you know, recommended that churches be limited in capacity, which restricted people's right to, you know, worship the God that they choose. Even if states were the ones that implemented this, the CDC has always been at the forefront and it is manipulative going back to Dr. Fauci. And I, I would ask you actually, do you not believe it's manipulative for Dr. Fauci to say masks are useless when he didn't believe it? He just wanted to alter people's behavior to save those masks, he said, for healthcare workers. So he knew that he was speaking an untruth. He knew he was lying to the American people and he did so just to manipulate their behavior. Do you, do you understand or do you, do, you, do you understand the feeling of manipulation, the feeling of distrust? And how, how do you actually trust Dr. Fauci that what he's saying is true after we've seen it play out? We've seen it play out that he says untrue things just to change somebody's behavior. So first of all, I think that's an exceedingly ungenerous view of what Fauci did and said. There was a crisis at the time of PPE availability um, and mask, uh, and specifically surgical mask and, um, and N95 mask availability. And um, people were hoarding them in the absence of evidence that they were uh, of use um, beyond the healthcare setting. Um, and in an effort to preserve uh, access for healthcare facilities to medical equipment, uh, he correctly at the time said that there was not substantial data supporting the idea that this was useful as a general matter. At the point at which it became clear that it actually was useful in general circulation, he changed his tune on that. And I think they're just, look, I understand that people are frustrated with the shifting message. You left out a key part of that story, though, of that yeah. narrative. Fauci admitted after he changed his mind, he openly admitted that he said that to alter people's behavior because he wanted to preserve, because he wanted to give that PPE to healthcare workers. That's, that's the manipulation. And I think that's what many people on the left don't acknowledge that 
the American people, I mean, these Fauci works for us. Our government works for us. We are not to be manipulated by our public health officials. And the moment that we are manipulated, we rightfully lose, lose trust in them. And th that's a big part of this. So of course that factors into mask mandates and it factors into vaccine mandates as well. Not just the data surrounding masks or the data surrounding COVID fatality or the data surrounding vaccines itself. It factors into the mandates because these people who have lied to us who we distrust are now trying to force us into doing something or use the private sector as their bully enforcers for their own agenda. And that to me, no matter what your political affiliation, no matter if you think that every person in the country should get the vaccine, that should be problematic to us as Americans because that's not how our government was intended to be set up. Okay, I think Ben kind of conceded a lot on the CDC front. So I think that there is actually some overlap here and the question of generosity of interpretation could kind of be seen from both sides as well. We gotta take it to a quick commercial break and then hopefully maybe Josh and I will be able to ask you guys a few questions. Um, stay tuned. <laughs> this is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Uh, we're debating vaccine mandates with Ben Wittes and Liz Wheeler. Um, we'll be right back. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. We're debating vaccine mandates. Um, so I want to ask a question about um, something that I think gets misrepresented a lot, which is the question of who is the unvaccinated. You know, we tend to see them portrayed very often in the media as like white Republicans. But the truth is, it's a lot more complicated than that. So in New York State, for example, 70% of white people are vaccinated as opposed to just 17% of black people and 18% of Latinos. And actually, income is a huge factor. About three quarters of unvaccinated adults live in um, a household that makes less than $75,000 a year. And food insecurity is actually a huge predictor for being unvaccinated. I mean, people don't know this, but the unvaccinated are nearly three times as likely as the vaccinated to have had insufficient food recently. And my question for you both is, why is neither side making this argument like, we allowed this conversation to get sort of picked up and turned into our, you know, usual culture war debates when, you know, you could have just as easily imagined Republicans saying, hey, you know, it's not like just white people and rich people who are making this decision. It's poor people of color. Like, isn't this supposed to be like who you care about, liberals? And you could imagine the liberals actually allowing this data to influence how they talk about vaccines, how they talk about the unvaccinated. And instead, you've seen the sort of like political sides again, erase the question of class, erase the question of income in order to sort of like, um, you know, mount the barricade of their of of the culture wars and i'm just wondering like a if you both agree with me and b why you think that happened and see how we get out of it let's start with you ben so i think the reason it happened is uh just a function of first of all numbers and secondly who the loudest voices are among those numbers it is true that there is uh, a significant ethnic effect in uh, the uh, disproportionate ethnic effect in the unvaccinated community. Uh, it is also the case that there is a huge political effect. And uh, I think that's largely driven by uh, the nature of the rhetoric. 
and the uh, the fact that uh, the um, uh, and it is also um, it's not just driven by by the rhetoric, um, but it's also reflected in the rhetoric. And so, you know, the the Tucker Carlson's of the world are both causing people not to choose not to get vaccinated. They're also representing the people who choose not to get vaccinated, and the um, and the people who are sort of in the uh, you know I, I don't quite know what to call it the 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 mainstream vaccinate everybody community um, are much more likely at the uh, level of people who are. Uh, you know, participating in the public debate to be doing so from a mainstream politics uh, point of view. And, and so I think there's both a cause and an effect going on. But I agree with you, the actual demographics of the unvaccinated are more complicated. It's not simply a Republicans, you know, Trump voting Republicans versus everybody else effect. Liz? Well, I think it, it the reason that the narrative doesn't reflect the reality, meaning the reason that um, Trump voters are accused of being the only ones unvaccinated is simply a factor of Trump derangement syndrome. This has been something that unfortunately the liberal mainstream media has gotten bogged down in the last five years that anytime there's anything they don't want, they just want to point at President Trump. They just want to point at Trump voters. They they vilify and they demonize. I mean, there there's been even the suggestion that Trump voters in general that half the country are domestic terrorists because of people's belief that voter fraud, to whatever extent, happened during the 2020 election. I mean, this is a very ingrained and intellectually lazy mindset of the left to blame everything on Trump voters. As you pointed out, the data simply shows that that's not true because the majority of black people in our country did not vote for President Trump, yet they're the highest uh, racial or ethnic demographic in our nation who are unvaccinated. And I, I think this really points out the differences in the political ideology between the right and the left, because the left, of course, pretends to champion minority communities, pretends to want the best for minority communities. Yet in New York, to use your data in New York with this vaccine mandate that's now being implemented in New York, black people are going to be disproportionately impacted. They're either going to be faced with social ostracization. They're not going to be allowed to participate in what essentially what white people in New York are going to be allowed to do, going to the gym, going to restaurants, going to shows, or they're going to be subject to being inoculated by the government with a drug that they don't otherwise want. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, the rhetoric coming from the left claiming to champion minorities is very incongruent with the policies that they're putting into place in the city of New York. Now, Ben is correct. There also is a difference between the percentage of people vaccinated who are conservative and the percentage who are vaccinated who are liberal. No one's arguing that. I would argue the reason for that is because, and again, this comes back to the difference in political philosophy, but conservatives tend to be skeptical of government. We believe in limited government and individual freedoms. We believe we know what's best and that the government's just there to secure our rights against usurpation. Liberals, on the other hand, tend to believe that government uh, is there to take care of you, that government should be a welfare state. And therefore, people who ascribe to a progressive ideology tend to be more obedient to so-called experts and bureaucrats that are in the government. And I'll give you an example of this. It's absolutely silly for a healthy, young 20s or 30s year old person who has already contracted COVID and recovered from it to get the vaccine. 
There's absolutely no scientific evidence that would back that up. And people with common sense understand that. Anybody that you talk to, regardless, anybody that you talk to really who's had it questions, why do I need the vaccine if I already am inoculated naturally against this? And so conservatives, because of their ideology, are comfortable questioning that and comfortable making that individual decision for themselves, thinking for themselves, thinking independently, whereas liberals tend to be more docile. They tend to be more obedient. They tend to say, well, the experts say to do it. So even though it doesn't make any sense to me, I'm still going to do it. So I think that accounts for some disparity in uh, in the political aspect of it. But yes, the whole thing, the narrative that it's just Trump voters that are unvaccinated versus all liberals who are vaccinated doesn't doesn't add up when you look at the data dem- or the demographic data. Well, Ben, I, I guess two questions for you then. I mean, I'm happy that Liz made this point about what's happening in New York City with the percentage of the unvaccinated. You know, our friend Steve Dace tweeted that out, I think, only a day or two ago. And, you know, it's a little bit of a cheeky point, but there's a lot of truth to that. right? I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, you have kind of folks with kind of the anti-racism, critical race theory, um, the Ibram S. Kendi line about, you know, when I see disparate impact, I see racism. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to make you obviously a spokesman for the Ibram X. Kennedy position, but like it, it's not unreasonable to ask how to reconcile that trend of thought with what is happening with vaccine mandates, right? And Ben, if I could just add to that one more thing that I would love for you to address, it's very relevant, like, again, to take it out of the culture war question, to to have even um, a mandate that's enforced by the private sector. If we just look at New York City, again, that's going to hurt uh, lower income communities of color more than anybody else because they are the ones who are sort of um, vaccine hesitant. So are we really willing to say we're going to sort of, you know, further create even deepen the sort of American underclass who we should be raising up and helping? I would love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah. So first of all, I'm the wrong person to ask to uh, 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 defend uh the Abram Kendi worldview. Uh, that's not my thing. Um, and um, uh, and I'm not a, uh, and I'm not going to do it, um, and I'm not going to play that role. Um, I, I will say that, uh, a, look, a, it is possible for two things to be true at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, African Americans are twelve, uh, between twelve and fifteen percent of the population of the country. Uh, you can, uh, uh, they are dwarfed in size and scope by Republicans, uh, which are, you know, 40 to 50% of the country, depending on how you define a Republican. Um, And so it is perfectly possible that there are, in fact, it is quite true and supported by the data that um, uh, if you have a vaccine mandate, it will disproportionately impact Republicans who are the majority of uh, uh, the biggest group of people unlikely to be vaccinated and African-Americans and Latinos who are smaller groups of people who are un- less likely to be vaccinated. Um, that doesn't bother me at all. I don't see that in terms of racial justice. I see that in terms of limiting human choice by way of protecting public health. And I, I, I mean, Liz admirably made a concession earlier in this conversation that seems to me to be very important, which is that if we followed her worldview, there would still be smallpox in the world. And, um, and I, to me, that's where the debate begins and ends. That, um, you know, once you say, I oppose vaccine mandates and I'm willing to tolerate smallpox, in the name of human choice, there's not really that much 
and there's not that much left to to talk about, in my view. Is it is it actually your position, Liz? Let's give you the chance to clarify that. Yeah, I that thought is, Liz, of course. Not I thought Liz I said. said the opposite. No, yeah. that, that's a misrepresentation. <laughs> is it right? Ben Ben knows that that's a misrepresentation. Yes, it's hyperbolic, intended to try to scare people into thinking that if you don't. Uh, support vaccine mandates for COVID-19 that you want smallpox to be rampant. It's ridiculous. And you know that you're a lot, you're a logical man. You know that. I think that it's important to take these trains of thoughts to their logical conclusion. So let's do that right now. If the government has the authority, even through mandating, because I want to, I want to touch on something that Badia said too. It's not just a private sector mandate in New York. It is a government mandated private sector mandate. It was the administration of the governor of New York that said that the private sector had to be the enforcers. So it's not a private sector mandate. It is a private sector being coerced into being enforcers. So we have to take this to its logical conclusion. As I said before, this vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine is not FDA approved. It is under emergency authorization use. And you are okay with your position. You are okay with the government mandating that the private sector be the enforcers to force minorities to take a not FDA approved medical procedure that they otherwise wouldn't want to do. You, your position is that that's okay. And so my question is, what is the limiting principle on that? What is not okay? What, where do you draw the line for something that the government wouldn't be allowed to do that would be a violation of bodily autonomy if this exact scenario is, a, is appropriate to you, which your position says is? Yeah, so uh, so let me answer your question, but I want to go back to the smallpox example because I, I didn't think I was being hyperbolic. I thought I was actually characterizing the position that you took earlier. So I do want to go back to that. Look, uh, the way you've just stated this, tar you know, if this were targeted at minorities, obviously that would be racial discrimination. No, not into that. This is not, this is a... a a race neutral, it is a politics neutral uh, public health measure that has disproportionate impact. If I thought you were willing to meet me halfway and say, okay, a lot of people are hung up about the formal FDA approval, so no vaccine mandate should go into effect until the FDA approves it, that actually, I, I could work with that. Um, uh, though I actually don't think I think people are misunderstanding what FDA approval uh, in this formal sense does and doesn't convey. But I could actually work with that if I thought this were really about uh, FDA approval. As to what the limiting principle is, uh, the limiting principle is, uh, um, to me, um, is first of all, quite low because we have vaccine mandates to send your kids to school. Uh, all over the country and um, without particular controversy, although people do defy them. Um, and so I'm not, uh, you know, I don't think of this as a particular infringement on people's uh, fundamental rights. That said, if you ask me what the limiting principle is where I would use government power to coerce it, um, I would say that limiting principle is is the, you know, is A, rampant transmissibility. So, um, you know, I agree with you. I would not use any government power to prevent obesity. Obesity is not a communicable disease. Um, so, but when you have a highly communicable virus that 
kills a lot of people. And right now we are running out, uh, once again, running out of ICU beds in important jurisdictions in the country. And people, we're, we're losing 600 people a day right now. Now, I would say that the difference between losing 600 people a day, that is much more like the 30% mortality rate associated with smallpox than it is like the shingles vaccine, which by the way, I should get, and I haven't bothered to do it yet. I just haven't bothered yet. I'm going to do it. And I don't think the government should coerce me to do it because shingles is not transmissible. Um, I will do it eventually, just haven't gotten around to it yet. I want to go back before we close though, to this smallpox point, because you're I, I understood you to be saying that you would have opposed the forced, forcing people, the strategy of ring vaccinations, which were not voluntary, by the way, to contain and ultimately eradicate smallpox. That's how it was done. And it was done, by the way, not domestically, but worldwide. So my understanding uh, of Liz's position was that she was actually drawing a distinction between smallpox and, and COVID and saying you have to actually look at those differences. But Liz, I'll let you respond to everything Ben just yeah, said, as well so, as the, the smallpox so point. Sure. If I misunderstood you and you were saying you're, you're fine with a vaccine mandate if it's smallpox, um, then I apologize and I misunderstood you. But if what you're saying is you oppose vaccine mandates even as applied to smallpox, and you think that the small that smallpox would affect how people exercise their personal choice, then what you're really saying is you're okay with large numbers of people not choosing to vaccinate against smallpox. The result of that is a certain amount of residual smallpox in the world. So what I'm saying is I think it's really, really important to establish a limiting principle. So the limiting principle that you just stated was you think that if a virus is highly transmissible, you didn't say anything about the fatality rate. You didn't say anything about who was at risk. You just said if a virus is highly transmissible. So my question, as I said, as a skeptic of government, because government has abused their power, because government has violated the individual rights of individual citizens throughout the course of not only our country's history, but the history of the world, I'm very, very concerned about a limiting principle. I'm very concerned about where this could end. And I can give you a couple of examples here. We have politicians at the federal level right now who are defining racism as a public health crisis, a public health emergency. They're defining climate change as a public health crisis and a public health emergency. These phrases, in a sense, have lost all meaning. And so we have to be very specific about where we draw this line, this limiting principle. Otherwise, our rights are just on loan from the government. We are just given privileges as long as we comply with what government officials want us to do. So I don't think that we can have this conversation without establishing a very, very clear limiting principle. Me, that to me, me is you... more important than comparing, wait, 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 let me finish, please. That to me is more important than comparing apples and oranges. Because what we're talking about here is we're talking about a modern day COVID-19 uh, outbreak and a modern day COVID-19 vaccine. That's what we're talking about. And we shouldn't get off topic on something else because what matters is whether the government has a right or if they do, whether they should use it to mandate or use the private sector to enforce a mandate on citizens with the COVID-19 vaccine. That's what's important to talk about here. And what the limiting principle is 
if we allow government to do it in this particular circumstance. We're running very long here, so we really do have to bring this to a close. So let's get to the point where, you know, clearly the two of you could go on all day, if not all week or all month. But for the sake of time, for the sake of our audience's attention span, let's give you each a 60 to 90 second opportunity to just kind of summarize and, and synthesize your position for the audience. Ben, let's start with you. All right. Uh, I think the the core limiting principle is transmissibility and lethality above the rate of what we normally tolerate in mortality from communicable disease. Um, if we had a flu vaccine that worked over time um, and uh, wasn't seasonal and we could mandate it, I'd be really comfortable with that. Flu kills a lot of people every year. Um, I note that Liz still has not answered my question about smallpox. And I want to focus on that because I think it is the consequence of the position that she's taking is that she essentially opposes mandates even when the consequence is mass death. I'm just not willing to go there. And I'm not saying she's for endemic smallpox, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, given the choice between a government mandate and endemic smallpox, she's not willing to say she'll take the mandate. And so once you say that about smallpox, then we're just negotiating the price. We're negotiating how much transmissibility, how much excessive death you're willing to tolerate. If you oppose a mandate, even in the case of smallpox, it seems to me you're saying something else. And that is a place I can't go. So do you support a government mandate of vaccines right now in America in response to COVID-19? As I said at the beginning, um, there are many good tactical reasons that might caution against doing that. Um, I certainly support, in if the, if the government were to decide and were to present compelling reason to think that that would be the best way to get the most people vaccinated, I have no problem with it. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know, honestly, whether that would scare off more people or create more resistance than it would address. And so I don't want to say I think it's the right thing to do. There's a whole lot of, uh, there's a whole lot of variables that I haven't thought about. If the question is, is it a uh, is it the thing that, like, is it something that I have a philosophical position against? No, not at all. And I'm totally comfortable with companies, local entities, organizations, uh, including at the encouragement of government uh, or with regulatory pushes behind them, enacting it themselves just as I did. All right. So, Liz, let's give you the opportunity to close out the show. But I, I guess my question to you is, like, how, how much of your stance is really kind of like a first principles, kind of like Patrick Henry during like the Virginia ratifying convention, like, give me liberty or give me death? I mean, how much of that is really what your stance is? I, I would say both. I mean, I certainly ascribe to that philosophy. I mean, that's that's the foundation of our country. That's why we're even able to, you know, do this, have this debate, right? Because we are a country mm -hmm. that has prized liberty. We have prized individual autonomy. It has led to a free market that has led to prosperity so that we can all do this for a living. Without that kind of liberty, that kind of innovation doesn't happen. We might not even have vaccines without, um, without the kind of innovation that comes, that is begot of this freedom. 
I think when you resort to a debate tactic to try to back your debate partner into a specific corner that is tangential to the question, it shows that perhaps you don't have the um, the data to back up your position. And I've enjoyed debating Ben. I have. I think he's a worthy debate partner. And I think we've had a respectful debate. But I do think he was unable to answer the question of what's the limiting principle on this. Instead, he presents this, this deferential view that he himself doesn't want to take a stance on this, but he will defer to these so-called experts, these public health officials who are unaccountable to we the people and voters in government. And I'm not comfortable taking that position. I think there are many valid reasons why the American people might not want to take the COVID-19 vaccine. We can go through all of those reasons if you want, but our viewers pretty much know what they are. Religious objections, other health reasons that might preclude them. They have concerns about long-term effects or short-term effects. You know, all, all different kinds of reasons that are valid. And if we are not going to um, respect the right of individual people to make that decision for themselves, even when we might disagree with that position, then we are sacrificing the liberty that underpins our country that has allowed us to have these kind of medical advances in the first place. So no, I don't think it's the federal government's role. I don't even think it's their right to mandate vaccines. It might be something states are allowed to do, but just because something's legal, as we all know, doesn't make it moral, doesn't make it ethical, doesn't make it right. And I think it's a slimy tactic of the left, of politicians on the left, to use private businesses as the enforcers for these vaccine mandates. I think I think it's wrong and I don't support it. All right. So we really do have to leave it there. I know we could go on all day, but um, on behalf of Body and myself, thank you guys both so much. This was probably the liveliest debate we've ever had on this program. So seriously, thank you both so much. Thank you so much, you guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So Liz and Benjamin have left the building. Badia, that was thoroughly enjoyable. We were barely needed, though. What were your takeaways? Oh, man, two people, like, really equally matched. What a pleasure it is just to sit back and, and, and let that happen. And um, they were both very, very vigorous and very, very well-informed and really brilliant, but also civil, I thought, even though in the end it got a little hairy. So I, I really, one of our best debates yet. Yeah, it was really fantastic. Um, I, I thought that was absolutely one of the highest quality programs we've had on, we've had on so far. I hope the audience enjoyed it. Um, Liz cracks me up. I've known her for years. I, I used to go on her show all the time when she was a OAN host. She's she's remarkably consistent. Uh, she takes the exact same set of principles and applies it to every single policy issue before her. My first time kind of directly engaging with Ben Witt is he obviously is a force to be reckoned with in his own right. So. We just hope that you, the listener, enjoyed it. So just as a reminder, this is Newsweek's The Debate Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. Please leave us five stars and a nice review. We will be very grateful. So we will see you next time. See you next time.